0: Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. This is Film Juxtaposed. I'm Ben. I'm Dina. And you're joining us for Tar and... Paral. Tar focuses on Lydia Tar, a world-renowned orchestra conductor who is an EGOT winner and has all the things that anyone could ever want as a successful woman in the orchestral world. But unfortunately... As her um, rumours surface of her bad behaviour and the pressures of the world sort of mount on Lydia, Tar's brand collapses and the film sort of follows her as her entire world uh, envelops, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Implodes. Implodes, there we go. And Dina, what is Carol about?
1: Well, Carol was originally um, a book by uh, Patricia Highsmith. It came out, I can't remember when, actually, uh, but it was originally called The Price of Salt. Um, She denied that she was the writer for it for about 30 years until it was republished as Carol. Um, It follows two women um, who meet a younger woman, um, whose name I've forgotten, Belovit, um who meets an older divorcee with a child and there's all these kind of queer moments and basically it's a lesbian love story it was the first when the book came out it was the first um queer story that had a happy ending because at the time if you wrote a book that had sort of same-sex attraction it had to have an unhappy ending um and it was the first one that kind of went against that um very controversial but the movie captures that it's an adaptation by todd haynes Just so you're aware, we're discussing the movies, so there will be spoilers in the podcast.
0: So there's one other added element that's really exciting about doing Tar and Carol. This is the first time that we've done on the podcast a pair of films that star the same leading actress, which is Kate Blanchett, who is amazing in both films, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, very different performances. In Carol, she's very reserved and. Aware of how she presents herself and very delicately seems to move through the world. Where in Tar, I'd say Cape Blanchette's character Lydia is almost the complete opposite. Who, if she finds a foot that she can stand on, she'll stamp on it. Yeah, she'll stamp on it and she won't go politely, she'll go staccato and like, you know, it's going to hurt.
1: She's like a bull in the china shop. (laughs)
0: She is <laughs> Painfully so. Um, uh, During this rewatch for me, I actually was becoming very aware that maybe there's like a couple of references near the end of the film, without giving away too many spoilers, to the idea of um, Western colonization and also uh, Western exploitation of the East. There's specifically reference to um, a Marlon Brando film that introduced crocodiles into a, uh, I assume it's a river, and um, Lydia Tar says to the person telling her that that, um, that was so many years ago, and the person says they survived. And it dawned on me that that's probably Apocalypse now that they're referring to, and I think that that probably wasn't a throwaway comment, it's actually a comment about Lydia herself, who we know came from the region because her family had a family home there, or something like that, and she's actually known by a different name. Um, But it's very clear that she survived when she went to the West, but she's come back and she's like some sort of, like, predatory prehistoric animal in a sense, and she connects with the prehistoric world, and I mean that quite literally, because the friends that she seems to spend time with, that are not people that she's working with or living with, are old conductors who are old white men who people seem to directly refer to in the film as potentially being problematic. So even though Lydia is female and a lesbian and seems to have a very modern feminist character, she seems to be part of this old world and she's surviving in the modern world. But interestingly, her survival also depends on her moving to a country that still exists in old traditions, which very, very quickly includes that weird massage parlor where she could handpick a woman, which was exactly what she was doing in the orchestra in Germany.
1: Yeah, which when she sees that, she actually vomits, um, which is an interesting kind of reaction
0: yeah, I thought Tar had a lot of moments that referred to shame. There's like a constant hint that Lydia is having to improve herself multiple times in her position and her authority. There's also the thing with the neighbor in Germany um, with the the shame of mortality because the, the neighbor is disabled and, and unwell. And there's something about how Lydia feeds off that shame. There's also the sequence where Lydia chases after the uh, Russian girl. I don't remember her name, do you? No, nah, I'm terrible at names. No, it's okay. But, like, she she chases her into this underground tunnel that's like, it looks like a deserted area of Germany. Like, it's some sort of hidden past. And then again it's like some sort of, like, underlying sense of shame.
1: What's What's the thing in the tunnels that she runs away from? It's a
0: wolf. Or a, a fox, or...
1: Right, yeah, but it's like, it's very unclear. It looks like some kind of, kind of monster. Which I think is almost... it. It's almost like her desire suddenly creeping up on her because why is she running after this um, cellist, you know? And it's like it's quite clearly inappropriate. She's behaved in very inappropriate ways. Um, manufactured the whole setup so that this girl ends up getting the the lead of the like the piece that they're working on and all of this. And I think that kind of wolf that appears. It almost is like a metaphor for her desire kind of creeping up on her, and it's it's her downfall because she literally runs away and falls over and smashes her face. Yep. But then, says that she's been attacked.
0: Yep. And she she's very vague about the attack, but there's some sort of sense of shame that she actually had a fall. Yeah. Like, it had to have a narrative that would hide the shame.
1: Yeah. It has to be somebody else who's done it, rather than she fell over. Yeah. Like, um, so it's that kind of victimhood position. She has to be I thought the two films are really interesting um, when thinking about sort of power relations. Yep. And that's one of the moments where we see that because she can't acknowledge the fact that she's done something where she's exerting her power, i.e. chasing after this young cellist um, and winding up in an area that she doesn't know. And she falls, which is a thing that she's done, but she has to hand the power over to something else by saying that she's been attacked. Like she doesn't acknowledge her role in things. And that kind of taps into what's happened with, um, Krista, which is the, the whole thing that kind of comes out of the woodwork during the film.
0: Yep, Krista and that little secret that's buried. Um, yeah. It's very interesting that both films had secrets that were buried, secret pasts. Um, I don't know Sarah Paulson's character's name off by heart, but her role... Abby. Abby, okay. So Abby and Carol is this past of Cape Blanchett's character... And she surfaces quite like she surfaces quite late into the film as this example that Carol always had this hidden past, and yeah, in both instances, the film seemed to tackle the idea that women need to have some sort of need to be very aware of how they present themselves, but there's also expectations of them in society, and in both instances. It is that secret that becomes weaponized.
1: Their sexuality.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very At delibi- the end of the day. Deliberating. De- Deliberate. Oh. De- bi- debilitating. Thank you, debilitating. Like in both instances, it's as if their past is more relevant than anyone else's. It's like they want to be. Someone needs them to be a virgin figure.
1: The virgin or the whore, which is what we see in both. Um, because Carol is either allowed to be you know, the the good kind of obedient housewife who attends the parties with the in-laws who are rude to her, um, whilst she has to sort of smile and just take it and look perfect. Um, she's either allowed to do that, which I would say is sort of like kind of the virginal figure, really. She's like this pure, controllable thing. Um, or she's the whore who's had a series of lovers, which means that she it would be immoral for her to have custody of her own child, um, with the morality clause that the husband brings up against her in order to gain custody. Um, and again, that kind of brings in power. And I think actually the, the idea of, like, power is inherently connected to secrets, which is a bit of an obvious point to make, to be honest. But, like, secrets are, if, if you discover a secret where you can use it against somebody, that gives you power, which is what we kind of see. But I think the interesting kind of counterpoint is that in Carol, the husband, Hodge, is using Lydia's sort of secret, against her in order to gain power but in tar um tar has used her power and exploited other you know younger women she's used sort of her position of power within that um and then the result of that has become the secret so it's it's a slightly different setup we've got like somebody is using a secret to gain power but tar has used a power to sort of in the creation of this secret. And then it kind of comes out, and that's her destruction. Does that? I find it interesting how those two things are slightly yeah, different but similar yeah, at the same time.
0: I agree, and there's also um, there is an interesting element to to the sense of power and tar because there are long, there are many sequences with long takes. There is a real sense of um, the gravity of Lydia's character controlling space, and she she dominates space in a very unusual way, um, in the sense where she seems to disable people around her. Um, Yeah. She does it in the opening sequence because we, we sort of get the hint that the introduction to her being made in the interview was not written by the man reading it. It's actually written or at least known by Lydia's assistant, who seems to be mouthing the words as he reads it which means that there is a sort of sense that Lydia, as a guest to that event, has actually been in control of her biographical introduction. So it is not so much like she's an actual guest who's shown up and they're commending her for her position in the industry, but she's already disabled the interviewer before they've even begun. Before the film begins, she's already disabled. In yeah, she's already in control. Likewise, in the very long sequence in the classroom, Lydia literally disables another student. She finds his weak spots, and she even physically disables his one tick in order to control him and the space. But interestingly, that power dynamic that we're talking about becomes completely weaponized by everyone else at a later point in the film, where Lydia's physical touch of someone else, like the scene where she storms into the orchestra pit and pushes Mark Strong's character out the way to conduct, at that point her physical behavior is no longer accepted by anyone, unlike in the classroom where everyone felt that she had the power to do that. And it's it's almost like the film tips in the complete opposite direction. By the end of the film, Lydia's physical power is taken away from her, her psychological power on other people is it seems to be completely gone. Um, and there's even a sequence where she's waiting to meet the composer of the, the music piece from the video game. Um, and they, they, the she's a guest in this space and she doesn't understand their language, at least from what we understand. And they just blurt out to her that the con- the composer is not attending but here's the score and here are a couple of gifts to you, but she seems to have completely lost her ability to control things. At that point, she's just sort of like accepting whatever's given to her. Um, I absolutely love the ending of Tar. Absolutely love it. Yeah. I love how demoralizing it is that she's conducting a video game music performance, which like, we know Lydia by the end of the film. That is like She's doing it for money, and is like, that is hell to her. Yeah. I thought both films were very interesting in terms of their portrayal of um, how we interact with children, but also the difference between the interaction with children and Carol, which, was that the 50s? Yeah, so it's like how children are spoken to or interacted with in the 50s compared to how they're spoken to and interacted with in contemporary society, because. Um, there's a real sense that safeguarding in the past was very much, uh, part of society's role in terms of like kids were almost excluded as safeguarding was more, I don't know how to explain it. It was almost like kids were being moved, moved around like mercury. Like they weren't like exposed to certain things. They were sort of like kept in their houses, almost like dollhouses houses. And there was sort of like put in a car and moved between, where, like tar, there are multiple instances where the kids are exposed, that no one seems to be witness Lydia's behavior around them, or there is a sense that contemporary society has almost forgotten the um i don't know how to describe it the sort of like the the need to safeguard but separate, yeah, there is a sense of. Actually, maybe that is the biggest difference Is in Carol, adult behavior seems to be very toxic, and everyone knows that, mm-hmm. where in, in TAR there's this weird sense of safety, and when someone does something that's dangerous or toxic, it becomes outrageous.
1: Mm. It's interesting, because when we think about safeguarding with children, we often think that like, safeguarding protocols and what we view as being acceptable to be around children has sort of improved now. But I get your point, and I think also it is kind of... I was quite shocked in the scene where Tar goes up to the girl that's been bullying Petra and literally just threatens her. Like, threatens her with violence. And, like, that is that is very shocking. Um, and you're right, at the end of... Uh, sort of towards the end of Carol, um, the scene in the sort of divorce proceedings where they're meeting with the mediator, Carol sort of... Um, there's multiple attempts to silence her and prevent her from saying what she wants to say to her husband. Um, but the thing that sort of wins him over and prevents him from taking full custody of the child and using this morality clause is her appeal to him about she says something along the lines of um something like it's our responsibility and we're if if we do this, we're about to sort of make our child's life so much more complicated and a lot messier and so on very roughly summarising what you was saying, but it's it's the, um, the appeal on the basis of the child that kind of gives us the kind of conclusion, almost, whereas in Tar, Petra just kind of disappears. That's kind of interesting.
0: Let's talk about sound and music in these films.
1: Sound and music in both of the movies, and Silence, was all really interesting to me. Um when silence is imposed it's a form of erasure right so i'm kind of going to connect sort of silence with erasure so we've got um opening sequence of the voiceover um introducing tar with all of these kind of things that are done for her the work that's been done for her has been silenced and we only hear her so she's kind of being superimposed on other people in that sense um we also only hear about krista through tar um so again she's been silenced in that way um we have the apartment when it's being sold. They ask for silence so that they can sell the apartment. But she creates rash, loud sounds that's obnoxious in order to try and, you know, thwart that. So she's inserting sound where it's not wanted. She's sort of imposing herself on other people in that way. Um, there's the fact that she's a conductor which organises the orchestra. So that is, like, inherently sound-focused. Um, and, you know, when she interrupts the performance she's again she's interrupting sounds she's kind of like she literally punches through it right in carol there's a lot of kind of quietness there's um once um carol and therese have separated therese phones carol and carol is silent and then hangs up and there's something interesting in there about sort of silence and she said to she's written the letter for therese again that's silence but still kind of communicating something Which she's gone you know we essentially going we have to take time apart and we see in another conversation with Abby later on that she says she wished that she'd written down you know wait for me um and there's other interesting moments of sound as the fact that um the thing that kind of connects them I think their relationship definitely becomes closer where Therese gives Carol the record which obviously is is music and it's the thing that in that scene where Therese kind of makes a comment on the music that Therese... Sorry, Carol makes a comment on the music that Therese is playing when Therese is playing on the piano, they're in the house. It's just moments before Hodge interrupts them. And Therese is trying to play this piece on the piano and Carol keeps sort of interrupting and having a conversation, but she compliments the music that Therese is playing. And this is like a moment when Therese gives her the record that almost kind of moves their relationship into the next stage. It's almost like acknowledging that it's mutual. Um, So there's something interesting there as well um and then of course like the most key part is that a thing that threatens carol so much is this recording that's been made of the two of them which we never hear um but it's also it's kind of if we think of silence as almost erasure or privacy it's this moment that should have been private that's invaded so there's kind of and the sound is captured and that's what threatens the potential for her to have a relationship with a child and also gives her husband so much power over her. Um and then obviously like the key thing in that last scene, which I just love so much when teresa's basically told Carol, no, I'm not interested, she goes to this party, then she goes back to where she knows Carol is and the characters don't say anything. But we just see their faces and we have that slow does it kind of like zoom in a little bit on Carol?
0: I'm going to admit I don't remember.
1: It's, we have these shots back and forth of their faces and then the final shot is this long shot of Cate Blanchette sat at this table surrounded by other people but she's making eye contact she's looking directly at the camera
0: oh yes 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 okay and we yep. just
1: see her and her face changes into a smile and that's it and it's so beautiful but again this is this moment of silence that's somehow connected rather than a form of erasure where we see silence as often as kind of like something being shut down or removed but in this moment silence is connection It's it's this their bond is so strong that they communicate with just a look um it's such a beautiful ending and it's so beautiful in the book as well and I love how todd haynes managed to capture how the book ends because I think he really manages to translate it really beautifully
0: yeah, I definitely did feel on a rewatch that Carol the use of sound, especially if the, the music is very uh specifically used as a, yeah. a sort of like transitional tool for time yeah um. It seems to sort of, we never have complete pieces of music, it's just sort of like, it's like ebbs and flows in the background, um, along with often whispered dialogue scenes. Um, I think maybe, if if anything, that might be, again, why I keep going back to this idea that Carol is a series of postcards, because uh, it's so quiet and personal, it feels like something you could hold in your hand that's very tactile. Um, and you only get like glimpses of music, um, which is very different from, from Tar, which is at times very quiet and at other times very brash. The the use of sound in Tar. Um, so there is a weird... There's a, there's a slight difference between the two films. The sound in Carol, both musically and vocally, seems to be very leveled. Yep. Where in Tar, it seems to be very... Um, up and down up and down, very uh, I don't know what the word would be but there's heavy contrasts there's a lot of dynamics in tar where in in Carol it's a a slow, smoothing waltz
1: yeah Smooth, smooth jazz that's kind of like yeah, very like loose and I think also if we think about that, like Carol and Therese are acting very carefully and they're being very deliberate and it's very delicate Whereas Tar is, like, bashful and she kind of, like, she fucks up and it's, like, loud and nasty and all of this. So I yep. think it kind of it fits in with the characters as well. Like, I think also Carol can't be loud and kind of scream and shout like she wants. We only have that one scene where she's begging to have some kind of contact with her daughter at the end. Um, it's all very restrained and it has to be for protection. And I guess that's mm-hmm. where, like, levels of privilege come in because Carol... ...has a lot less privilege than Tar... ...and we can think about that in terms of comparing... ...sort of society as ...across the sort of... ...60, 70 years... ...that are between those two kind of stories.
0: Um, I have one little side note... ...regarding sound, which is quite fun. So the sound in the car... ...that uh, that seems to irritate Lydia Tar... ...that's actually the rattling... ...sound of Todd Field's... ...car. Um, So that's the director... He had a car accident when he finally got news of uh, Kate Blanchett joining the project or um, I think it was he was negotiating her joining or something like that. He had a small car accident and later on when he had the car repaired, it still made that rattling noise. So there's something weird, like it's quite fun, but it's like a little insert into the film. There's also another fun piece of film trivia the sequence where Lydia Tarr runs through the park and hears a woman screaming, which is quite unnerving, and we don't know what it means or where it is, is actually the screams of uh, one of the women at the end of uh, the Blair Witch project. It's actually inserted into the film. Um, So there is something very interesting about... uh, I don't want to say reappropriation, because it's not that, but there's some sort of, like digital dirt that's been inserted into TAR, which seems to be interrupting the classical world that Lydia wants to belong to. But I don't think it exists anymore. Yeah. Which is the complete opposite of Carol, which is a very curated, very carefully um, assembled film that is is trying to capture a period, but o- authentically... Mm. And there mm. is no dirt that is not well like not part of the world i mean to to the point of like the 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 as you refer to the jazz music, the cigarette smoke that's everywhere in carol, and of course the beautiful grainy wet and rough images of the sixteen millimeter and you can feel that celluloid as it it projects mm.
1: the idea of like the blair which i 'm kind of i'm interested in that. Um, because if we think about Blair Witch Project, am I right in remembering that when that movie came out, the actors had to sort of like hide for a bit after the movie came out and they pretended it was real?
0: Yes, for for um, it was a marketing ploy for a very yeah. brief period. They try to do that. Yeah. So that's
1: something that's very manufactured. That's yeah. that's that's pretend reality. That's like that's people putting on a show in order to convince everybody else something, and that's exactly what Tar does. So it, it feels very poignant that that's sound that they pull into the scene where I think that's sort of at the time when she's starting to lose control of her life and things are starting to get bad. Um, yeah. And that's what she hears. It's the sound of, maybe it's the sound of her kind of manufactured carefully kind of constructed bullshit is starting to tumble down.
0: Or maybe it's also back to your theme of erasure because the Blair Witch project is actually about erasure. The the film tackles the concept of a myth where people have gone missing that no one has really cared about. i now like to ask some yeah. fun, like near the end of the podcast, we always usually talk about like some, some unusual questions relating to the films. So, like, we've mm. done two Cape Blanchett performances. Mm. Did you feel like that there was a difference between the performances in terms of physicality?
1: She was more gaunt in Tar. She looked more angular and more sort of sharp. And, like, I wouldn't want to find her in a bar when she's drunk because I feel like I might get punched in the face. You know, it was like, she she looks more, I don't want to say threatening, but she's definitely also more masculine. Like, she slicks her hair back and she's wearing these, like, men's suits and stuff You'll, like that. Refers she refers to, to the herself as
0: father at one tailor.
1: point. Yeah. Father, yeah. Yeah, whereas Carol is this like extremely feminine, but the femininity obviously we can we consider the fact that it's the fifties in America and women had to look a certain way. So we don't know that Carol would necessarily have wanted to dress that way. And actually, once she leaves her husband, she loses the red nail polish that she's had on her hands the entire film. It's only like at the end when she has natural nails, which I think is interesting. um But who would I rather sort of bump into? Definitely no, I don't ask
0: I asked unless I know that's not what you asked, I but
1: don't... I think that links to the physicality because I think tar definitely has something menacing about her.
0: I think I could learn something from Lydia, but she would scare me, yeah scare me yeah, exactly, yeah, I think if you get close to the yeah. tar, you don't know what's coming
1: yeah you might you might get punched in the face, you might get. Have your career ruined and then have the emails deleted. <laughs> you don't know,
0: or you um, might, uh, you know, end up uh, being the inspiration of her next accordion song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think in terms Listen of performance... <laughs> podcasts, please
1: remember to subscribe. <laughs> Um, but I think in terms of physicality, you can. I think you can see it. I might be chatting shit, but I feel like you can see in the way that Cape and Shent holds herself, the difference between the two characters. There's something a little bit more fluid in Carol, and there's something a lot more angular and harsh in Tar. She's more kind of elbows out, shoulders strong, you know? And Carol, she's more delicate.
0: Well, the has been- film juxtaposed thank you for joining us thank you dina thanks for having me i assume like me you would recommend both carol and tar to our audiences
1: absolutely and um, i actually enjoyed watching carol a second time a lot more than i expected really loved it
0: and uh, i'd like to say the following regarding both films is i think both films are rare finds that actually require multiple viewings to really enjoy them
1: yeah definitely